Welcome to Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 17, Interesting Times. Interesting Times is, of course, the 17th Discworld novel and the fifth Unseen University Rincewind novel published in 1994, so shortly after Soul Music. As far as I can tell, there's been no adaptations of this novel. Not really sure how you would adapt this novel, to be completely honest with you, because it has like a scope that I think is a little bigger than some of the novels that we've seen before in terms of just like the different things that are going on in it. But a short summary. The Agitean Empire is on the brink of a power struggle, one that will determine the future of Discworld politics. Fate and the Lady play games with the destiny of humanity. And once again, Rincewind is reluctantly drawn into the center of the conflict, called upon by the Red Army to lead as the great wizard of legend. Can he, along with some old friends, survive these interesting times? Are you excited to talk about interesting times, Nigel? From more from the end of the book, yeah. As I was reading like the the front half of the book, I was kind of like, "Oh no, is it another middling entry into the yeah. Rincewind?" Like, I feel like Rincewind, like Rincewind's a really good character, but he gets shackled with a lot of like more consistently than any other series. He gets shackled with kind of bad plots. They don't really stand as well as other plots. I think the strongest one, in terms of what we've covered so far on the podcast, in like batting average, it's the Watch series who've done the best, if you don't count Theater of Cruelty, that's the name of it. But like in terms of full-length books, they're like the two that we've... Two? Three? Guards, Guards, Men two. at Arms. Yeah. Just two. Yeah. Those were both like excellent plots. For me, it was, I really liked the beginning, hated the middle part, and then kind of liked the end. I mean, it was kind of like up until just before they they actually had the revolt, you know, kind of around where they find Two Flower in prison. Which hey, Two Flower is back. Two flowers in this book, yeah. Two flowers in this book. You gave me no indication that he was going to. I was like, oh, he's probably not going to come back, and you were like, yeah, and you were like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted it to be a surprise. Which begs the question then, how long was Rinson in the Dungeon Dimensions? So it's strange because they don't they don't ever actually give us an answer to that. I think they say something along the lines of three years in Eric, but that's like three Discworld years. And I don't know hmm. how long that is in Dungeon Dimension years, or even if the Dungeon Dimensions have time in the same way that the Discworld does. Because, yeah, the implication is is that he's in there for a while. Even, like, the way that Two Flower talks about their journeys, it's very much like, oh, well, when we were younger, you know, we used to go on these adventures. Mm. And so that implies that quite a bit of time has passed, at least for Two Flower, between the events of The Light Fantastic and Interesting Times. Yeah, and also the fact that he's got two, like, nearly full-grown daughters, and Rinsen's right, like, you never yeah. mentioned that you were married or had children. And Tufer was like, yep, I'm pretty sure I did. I also just thought that the middle section of this book was so boring. And I honestly, I agree with you about the Rincewind books because I always said 
before we started this podcast and this read through of the series that the Rincewind branch of the Discworld was my least favorite branch. And I think that I've come around a little bit on the first part of the series, especially Light Fantastic and Sorcery. I actually really enjoyed those books on this read through more, I think, than the first time I read them, partially because I'm more aware of what's those books are engaging with, like the sword and sorcery stuff. But then also, I think they're actually better written than I originally thought. But now I'm kind of remembering that they're so uneven <laughs> as a branch. Like, those books were really good. But then Eric and this book, it just kind of feels like Pratchett is doing stuff with Rincewind just for the sake of doing stuff with Rincewind, that he's actually sort of moved on from the more sword and sorcery aspects, which Rincewind is very much tied to that, into the more steampunk aspects, which are more apparent, I think, in the death books and in the watch books. Yeah, with this one, we kind of have inklings of that. Like, now they've invented Hex, and Hex is starting to think for itself or himself, I suppose, as they refer to it. And then they go, why did we do that? I don't know why we referred to it as a him. It's definitely an it. Yeah, well, let's start there. What did you think of Hex? Hex was really cool. There was a lot of literary references that I, like, well, or may- maybe not references, more so like parallels that I might have drawn. And so like that one, like that kind of last paragraph where Hex was like learning to think for himself. It made me think of the opening of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. You know, whatever walked there, walked alone, that kind of vibe. And then also, uh, just a thing that we had, just on Rincewind, the way he's like, when he gets transported back to Ankh-Morpork, and he's like freaking out and doesn't know what the hell is going on, it's very much like, Gulliver at the end of Gulliver's Travels, you know, like the actual one, not the, you know, not the one they teach in schools, which is just the first two parts, the one where he's like, right. I've, I've spoken to talking horses, and then he meets a real human for the first time in however long and kills him on sight because he's like, I don't know what you are. That was a great part of Gulliver's Travels, where uh, Lemuel Gulliver is the first, is uh, the world's first horse girl, actually. Yeah, people don't talk about that aspect enough. But to go back to Hex, I thought Hex was really cool. And especially, I've mentioned this before, and I think it was mainly in the um, Reaper Man episode, where it's talking about how things are like shown as text, and the way they like put in you know, like the input dialogues, uh, the input and output dialogues for Hex, as to like what they want. That was pretty cool. And where they ask why, and it's like, oh, they could have just said just because. And then why anything, because anything, redo from start. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I guess redo from start is supposed to be like, that was like a real thing when computers were like do working off of basic, is that that was like an input. Like if you had an input error and it didn't understand it, it would say redo from start. Oh. It's pretty funny as well, because it's like, uh, I saw a meme yesterday where it was like, 64 kilobytes worth of RAM, oh, we've sent people to the moon, 8 gigabytes worth of RAM, oh, I can't handle Google Drive. <laughs> Google Tab Scary. Yeah, Google Tab Scary, that's what it was. 
I mean, you can look at the history of the computer and a lot of it is rooted in like Alan Turing and code cracking, but it's also very mathematical. But the way that they used to talk about computers was very like, what are the possibility of these things? And like, what could we use like these computational devices to do? And then like now it's just like, yeah, we have them in our pockets at all times and we use them to like post selfies and like look up our flag means death theories on Twitter and Reddit. Just a yes or no. Uh, is there a Discworld book that's about the rise of computers? I don't know. I don't okay. honestly remember. I don't think so. I know that there is like there's more exploration of Hex, but it's not like an full on AI uprising or or something like that. But you will get more Hex. This is not the last time you're going to see Hex. Good. I do like that Hex starts adding to itself and like changing things. I write a lot about AI in my in my stuff, mm. um, but I just think that this is like the cutest little adding the mouse nest that it like won't it won't let them move the mouse out of the out of the out of its machinery. Like it has the unreal time clock. Like the you know like it 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 creates the the new device for giving answers. The pen and the quill and talking about like what is thought and like is thought something that only humans have or only like biological creatures have like at the end of the day if you boil it down is thought mathematics or is it something more like all of these questions i find fascinating and i think it's interesting that the disc world is starting to dip its toe into it here yeah and it's something that um is kind of carried across through pratchett's work uh, and it's also linked by another name um with to the Long Earth series with um the character of Lobsang, which is which is an AI that's become sentient, but it's supposed to be like a Buddhist monk's mind that's been uploaded and getting into like, is that real? Is that human then? And of course we've had uh it isn't it was in Small Gods that we had the character of Lobsang. Yeah, and then there was also Lobsang Dibbler that he was referenced in yes. in, in Garrett's Garrett's. Which, we've got another Dibbler in this book. Disembowel myself honorably Dibbler. So wait, oh hold on. God, that's three... Yeah. That's three. There's, you know, CMOT Dibbler, and then there's DMH Dibbler in this one, and then there's just Dibbla, right? In, um... In Small Gods, yeah. And then whether or not you think Glopsane Dibbler is the original Dibbler, or if it's another Dibbler somewhere else. Yeah. Could be four. But why is there so many of them? It's so strange, because there's that, there's that dialogue with, between um, Rincewind and Twoflower where he goes, well, you were in Ankh-Morpork. Did you ever meet uh, a man called, called Dibbler? And he's like, yeah, I did. I had two of his sausages or whatever. And he's like, well, I think if these two met, there would be some some form of explosion. Yeah, he thinks, like, there's this whole thing about, like, parallel universes, and if you, like, met yourself in, like a parallel universe, like, the entire universe would cease to exist. That's actually, like, a Star Trek episode, like, the original series Star Trek. The episode is called The Alternative Factor. They meet a they meet a man who is trying to hunt down another version of himself that's, like, come through from a different universe. But then they're like, wait, if you actually, like, met him, you would destroy both universes. 
So we can't like let that happen because like one has a positive charge and one has a negative charge. It's like really weird science fiction, but it's it's very interesting. So I I I don't know if that's like a direct reference to that, but that's definitely an idea that has been explored in science fiction. So like maybe the reason there's so many dibblers is because the walls of reality are so thin in the disc world. And so like you have like it's almost like different countries have parallel versions of the same person. Two things on that. Like, obviously, yeah, it's a thing in, in science fiction. And then obviously you've got the kind of like folkloric tradition of the doppelganger, which, you know, is kind of like a separate part of yourself and then became just someone who looks like you. But originally it was, you know, like, this is a part of yourself or whatever. But also like Terry Pratchett used to work in a nuclear power plant, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. So presumably he was kind of a bit up on, you know, like particles and stuff. So like... It could, you know, like, matter and antimatter. Although I'd like to see an anti-dibbler. An anti-dibbler? Yeah, dibbler and anti-dibbler. There are certain roles that seem to pop up in every society, and it's sort of called, like, those roles call to certain types of people, and, like, they tend to be very similar to each other, right? Like, there's always, like, some entrepreneur mm. that's a little shady, you know, who who's out all in it for the money. And, like, that's, like, a trope, right? And so it's, like, making fun of that trope a little bit. Yeah. By having it all be the same person. Although, to your point about Terry Pratchett, one of the working titles for this book was Unclear Physics before he went back to Interesting Times. So he is definitely very interested in physics. Yeah. It's a good title, but I don't know whether it fits for this book. Yeah, I think that's actually what he said as well. But it'd be very funny if everything was the same, but the title of the book was Unclear Physics, and then he had basically, like, Control-H, like, replaced it. All the times they say interesting times with Unclear Physics, they have a curse there, (laughs) you know, maybe cursed to live in Unclear Physics, which actually... (laughs) Actually, I think that would be a good curse. I like that. May you live in Unclear Physics. Yeah, you walk outside the door and you don't know which rules of reality are going to apply to you at any given moment. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I'm with the, like, certain roles being filled by certain people. We kind of had that before with, you know, like, how Veterinary and Vorbus are kind of the same people, but they go about doing what they do in Mm -hmm. drastically different ways. And I think, like, Lord Hong is kind of like that as well. But he's, like, on the, like, he's on the opposite end of the spectrum from like, like if Venonari is there, then he's kind of like hung as somewhere like three quarters of the way to Vorbus. Just for, just for clarification, is the Agatean empire meant to be just all of Asia? I believe so. Yes. Good. Cause I was very unclear. Cause there was a lot of stuff like the Simo wrestlers is quite obviously Sumo wrestlers. Um, you know, and like Nightingale floors are a real thing in Japan and that kind of stuff. But then there's also like the Terracotta army, which is, you know, a relic of the Qin dynasty. In China. And so I was very wall. unclear. Yeah, and the wall, and obviously um, Genghis Cohen, uh, you know, for you know, is an analog for Chinggis Khan or Genghis Khan, you know, as it's anglicized too. That's a fun fact if you didn't know. Um, there's no, like, the G in Mongolian is like a ch, and then there's no kind of hard k sound, so it's Han. I think that in, I have it's somewhere in this massive pile of books beside. Oh, here it is. Um, it's a book recommendation. It's really good, actually. Um, don't fall over. Wolf of the Plains by Con Engeldon. 
It's a five book series. Okay. That, it's the life of Genghis Khan, Chinggis Khan, as he points out in the um, author's after thing. But he goes for like three books on Chinggis, and then he does the next two books on like the success. Well, the next book is about the successors that try and fill the void after he's dead, and then the one after that is about Kublai Khan. You know, Marco Polo fame. Although interestingly, that's right. meant to be pr- that's meant to be pronounced Hoopli Khan. It's a fun fact. It's weird because I wanted to just double check that because. At points, I was like, is this going to stray into Orientalism? Which is a thing we kind of had before, and like that exotic mysticism, you know, like the like fetishizing sort of the, the quote-unquote magic of Asian cultures. And at times, it slightly felt like that. And like, also, like, all the, the ruling families all have, like, you know, traditional kind of Asian-sounding names. I don't know really whether they are or aren't. Like, I don't you know, like, I can't comment on whether they're real ones or ones that they're, you know, are kind of, like, lazily written. But then I just, like, the fact that one of them is called the McSweeney's. Very old family, very respectable. Very old family. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be a composite because, like, Hung Hung sounds like Hong Kong. And, like you said, there's a lot of Japanese elements to it, but there's also a lot of Chinese elements to it as well. Like Yeah, like, the Forbidden City is, be- well, it was Beijing, wasn't it? Right, but there's also like a lot of like Japanese isolationism because it was really the Japanese who were very wary of outside influences who were basically saying that nobody beyond Japan really matters. Like they're all <laughs> just kind of Oh no. That was a wasp right oh, in no. my face. <laughs> Feel like you're being like hunted by a wasp right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, okay. There's a lot of Japanese isolationism, like this idea of like nobody really matters beyond this and we don't want anybody coming in except for the people that we want. And like even Japan even had like the one island that they allowed the Dutch to trade on, which is supposed to be the best pelargic um, analog from the disc world. Like so there's a lot of like Japanese stuff in here. There's the samurai. There's the sumo wrestlers, which to me, the sumo wrestlers was like the most egregiously offensive part of this whole book. But there's also, like, because it was very fatphobic at the same time. There's also a lot of, did you ever read uh, Tale of Genji by Lady Murasaki? No. That's the 11th century one, right? Like, it's like diaries, isn't it? Yeah, so the Tale of Genji is, it's considered the first novel. Hmm. Us Westerners like to say that Don Quixote is the first novel, but it turns out the Tale of Genji was written much earlier than that. But it is by Lady Murasaki, and it's about this prince in Japan. You know how earlier you were talking about how Gulliver is the world's first horse girl? Well, Genji is the world's first himbo. And a lot of the stuff in this book, in interesting times, Felt like a send up of some of the stuff in Tale of Genji because a lot of like Japanese culture, especially around that time, but even to this day, you can see like parts of it is very interested in like aesthetics. They're very interested in like poetry and art. Like that's like their main form of communication. Like Genji as a prince, his value 
to the court is not only in his physical appearance, but it's also in his ability to like write perfect poetry, to have an eye for the different values of aesthetics, to like really value that. And so like the idea of promoting someone based on their artistic talent rather than thinking about their capability for the job or their experience for the job, that's all very Tale of Genji. And so like that to me is what this also felt like. But like you said, there's a lot of plot points in here that are Chinese as well. So my question while reading this book, and I went into it with this question because I knew what was going to happen is, is this an oversimplification of Asian culture? Is it racist? Is it not? Is it the same problem that we had with the culture that was ripping off the Aztecs in Eric? Oh, and pyramids, slightly. And pyramids, yeah. I mean, it feels like it, but also I realize that, um, you know, two white people like us are probably not the best people to comment on it, but it definitely, like, even to me felt like some of it especially like the Simo wrestlers and stuff like like bang 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 duck or whatever like the way they're constructed it's meant like you know when you do that it you know it, it kind of bangs of you know when you kind of like make a racist approximation of what you think like a foreign language sounds like I suppose I should say people and not you, but like, you know what I mean? It's a general you. When You know when people do right. that? You know, and it, it's traditionally leveled at the countries that end in Stan um, in the Middle East, unfortunately. So that's what it kind of felt like. It's just weird. It, like, it feels there's a real disconnect between, I think, what it like, and especially in things like this, because it's not a Western culture. Between right. what it's representing and the way it's represented. I kept going back and forth on it because there are some things in this that I think are obviously based on stereotypes about Asian people. There's a couple of food jokes in here that I didn't really appreciate. Like, you know, people joke way too much about Asian people eating dogs that's not even entirely mm. true. Like, it's just, it's very much like a cheap joke at this point. There's also like the key to the Oriental mind, which is a, a quote that happens on, on page 82. The problem, I think, or not really the problem, I guess. The thing that did stick out to me, though, is that he seems to be saying that Ankh Morpork is really not better than this place. Like, there doesn't seem to be a privileging of, like, the West or, like, Britain or anything like that over this place. Like, they both seem to have their own problems. And that's the only thing that I think is the saving grace of this book, is that basically there's all these assumptions that Rincewind and the Ankh Morpork people, or even the barbarians, the Horde, make about the Agitian Empire, and then, like, those assumptions turn out to mostly not be true. That's what I would say is, like, the thing that maybe saves this. But again, it feels like Terry Pratchett thought, oh, well, I've been doing fantasy send-ups of fantasy. I should do send-ups of Asian fantasy. And then the problem is, is that if you're not from those cultures, I don't know if you can do send-ups of those without relying on a lot of stereotypes 
Because it relies an awful lot on, like, cultural things for the plot beats, especially, like, at the end where Rincewind takes over, you know, the Terracotta army stand-in, which is, like, isn't, don't they say that it, it ends up, like, making what's basically a golem? Yeah. Yeah, which is, like, I mean, there's stuff with the golem in Nepal, I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong about that. Don't take that as, like, a fact, but I'm pretty sure there's an association with golem in Nepal. But then also, like, I mean, even if you just take where the golem is most traditionally associated with, it's, like, Jewish folklore. So it relies on it relies on that kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah, and also, like, as well, the whole thing with Rincewind's vampire ghost, which I thought was very funny. It's the best part of the book. The campaign of misinformation. <laughs> um, but Lord Hong's response to that is to, you know, invoke ancestor spirits. Uh, you know, that's a large, right. that's a large part of like, you know, honoring your ancestors is a big part of, you know, Asian family culture. Some of the things that seem to be made fun of here, like the Japanese isolationism, it's like, well, maybe the Japanese weren't wrong, though, because of colonialism and like the U.S. made them open up. Yeah, I mean, you have to look at Britain and go. Mm. No, I, I think I'll pass on that. Yeah. And so like. Yeah, exactly. Wish the Irish could have done that. I know, like, it just feels like there are some things here that are oversimplifications. But I actually don't think parts of it are as bad as I was afraid that they would be, if that makes sense. Because Pratchett does try very hard to make these people real people. And Hmm. he tries very hard also to not privilege other ideas about the world over these ideas about the world if that makes sense Um, yeah but there are some pretty egregious parts like the sumo wrestlers even at the end of the book and i was going to discuss this later but i feel like it's come up slightly organically now it feels less organic now that i've drawn attention to it but uh here we go good to be here (laughs) the like the whole thing at the end where the Unseen University goes to take him out and then it reveals that the spell is actually like, you know, it's a triangle and it sent him to somewhere else. And that's ended up being 4X, which is an Australian standard. And that kind of relies on an awful lot of like, they all call each other mate, you know, like, oh, we'll call him, you know, like bloke and all this kind of stuff, which is a thing that some Australian people do. Like you do hear that, but like, you know, like they may as well be saying just, you know, like throw another shrimp on the Barbie constantly. The stuff with, like, the representation of, like, Aboriginal designs on the boomerang, you know, they just say, oh, draw a bunch of weird squiggly lines and on the didgeridoo. I did appreciate that there was a reference to the dreaming, which is kind of a, a thing which isn't really talked about a lot, because a lot of um, Aboriginal myths kind of get washed over. Uh, you know, like, the whole thing with, with dreaming lines and the, the dreaming from beforehand in... Um, in Aboriginal myths, that's how, like their kind of creation myth. I think I, I'm not fully an expert on the ins and outs of it, but I actually didn't mind the Australian, like the stereotyping of the Australian dialect. I think because the point of it was to not do a stereotypical Aboriginal dialect. Like the whole point was to like have these people that you would think would talk in a certain way or in a racist version of whatever it is that they speak. And then like 
you know, they're just like, oh, you know, hi, mate. You know, like, I think that's what the joke was supposed to be. Whether or not that's well executed is definitely up to debate. But I also really liked the the part where it was like Rincewind. There's three reasons why Rincewind was no racist. He'd ended up too many places too suddenly to develop that kind of mind. Besides, if he'd thought about it much, most of the really dreadful things that had happened to him had been done by quite pale people with big wardrobes. Those were two of the reasons. The third was that these men, who were just rising from a half-crouching position, were all holding spears pointed at Rincewind. And there's something about the sight of four spears aimed at your throat that causes no end of respect and the word sir to arise spontaneously in the mind. I actually really appreciated that because, like you said before, like there's a lot about, like most people on the Discworld aren't racist, they're speciesist. And so I I really appreciated that they were just like, no, Rincewind has like been to too many places and has like, you know, been in all these sorts of situations for him to be racist. However, I still think Rincewind is a little racist because he does tend to simplify things too much. Like he does talk in a very stereotypical way sometimes to the people in the Agitean Empire. You know, the way that white people talk to people in other language who speak other languages in order to try to make themselves understood. Yeah, really yeah. slow and like, you know, oh, you probably won't understand this big word. That, yeah, like, fuck off. Oh. Well, and then like, Cohen also does this, although they do make a point about mm. the fact that Cohen is kind of racist towards everybody. But like... It's just, it's one of those things where I'm like, I enjoy what you're trying to do, but I don't know if you're executing it perhaps the way that you think that you are. Yeah, because, I mean, as well, trying to make the point that someone isn't intolerant because they're intolerant to everyone is this, like, really stupid logical fallacy where it's like they've taken the paradox of intolerance and they're like, well, what if we do the exact opposite of that? And it doesn't work, funnily enough. And the whole point about Cohen is that he's actually kind of harmless because even though he, like, will say stuff about, like, oh, I hate foreign food and, you know, blah, 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 like, that he Mm. actually still respects people as people, which we should definitely talk about because I think there's a really interesting parallel drawn between Hong and Cohen in this book. But at the same time, it's like, you can't, like, I know this is 1994, so we weren't having this conversation at this point. But, like, your racist uncle isn't funny. Like, you know, like, it's just, like, even if your racist uncle isn't really that bad of a person, like, he still shouldn't be saying those things, right? Because those things, those things do cause people to act in violent ways. And, like, in the U.S. especially right now, there's a wave of violence against Asian Americans and uh, Pacific Islander people. And this is the type of things that usually precede that type of violence, the stereotypical talking and the, you know, why don't you go back where you came from and the, you all caused COVID because of your food. And like, you know, like all of that stuff is like racist talking points. And so hearing it out of Cohen's mouth feels really jarring. And again, I know that Terry Pratchett is working in a different context. And in the 90s, we did laugh at people's racist uncles. Like, that's just like, that was a pretty mainstay joke. But now it's like, was that ever actually funny? Like, was it ever actually harmless? That's like... Spoiler alert. No. The question. No, it was was never funny and it was never harmless. Yeah. This just in. Scientists have have officially proven your racist uncle, not funny. 
Like the John Mulaney, yeah. Mick Jagger thing. Not funny! Not funny. Yeah, well, just a thing. I don't know whether it's, like, a thing in America, but especially, like, old British people, like, that's a big thing with them. Oh, I won't eat the food if I go out somewhere like India on holiday. You know, like, they, you know, they, they won't touch the stuff because they feel like it's going to make them sick and it's going to ruin their bodies and, and shit like that. And then also just, like, the stuff that they say, like, there's far too many jokes where they almost talk about, like, rape in this book, and that made me yes. very uncomfortable. I don't think it's almost. There are, there are several rape jokes in this book. And it's like, that didn't really need to be in the book. We understand that they're barbarians, and we understand that they pillage. Like, rape should never be the butt of a joke. Nope. Nope. Hot take coming in. You. We're spitting hot takes here at uh, Nanny Ogg's it's Book Club. So, um, so hot. I mean, no one's ever talked about these things before, Nigel. We're, like, treading new ground. <laughs> We're treading new but, ground. Like, yeah. I mean, there's some people in the world, though, that you really need to take a smack upside the head and tell them that because they really don't fucking know that. No, that's true. And I did notice the rape jokes, and I was not, like, Caleb is the character's gross. And I don't mean that bodily. I actually really liked the Horde, except for some of that stuff. But I do want to talk about Hong, though, first. Hong is interesting because soul music, we didn't really have a real antagonist. We had the music, but like we talked about how that wasn't good or bad. And we kind of had Mr. Cleet as like a minor antagonist, which we didn't really talk about him very much because he just, he was like a one note antagonist. But Hong, we get like an actual. It was, yeah. Oh, fuck. The wasp actually just touched me there. Fuck off. Oh, no. Ah. I can't put him out because there's a whacking great big hole that's been punched through one of the windows of the shed, so he's just come back in. Ah! Okay. Apologies. No worries. <laughs> you can choose to leave that in the episode or not. <laughs> um, yeah, I love in soul music, though, it's like, death's like, I'm here! Uh, you know, like, I'm here and I'm doing stuff, and the music's like, I'm here and I'm also doing stuff, and then Mr. Cleet is like, I'm also here hi <laughs> music should be free that's what his whole thing is i think Hong is pretty cool because yeah he's got complex motivations i really like politics in fantasy it's one of the things i really enjoy about game of thrones and also this kind of translates into elden ring he seems like he would fit right into game of thrones yeah he'd be in king's landing what is it about fantasy books and wheels? Because like Wheel of Time has a lot about wheels in it. And then Game of Thrones also has a lot about wheels in it because the whole idea of like the houses, right? And like sometimes they're on top and then, yeah. you know, the next house will be on top and it's a wheel. And Daenerys talks about like breaking the wheel. This book has wheels reference too. Like I think it's Two Flower who says like they they think history is like a wheel, right? Like it it all repeats and it's all cyclical and it comes around again. What is it about fantasy books and wheels? I actually have that written in my notes. I don't know. I think it's borrowing from a lot of borrowing from a lot of like medieval traditions. I know there's a lot in Shakespeare about wheels and stuff. You know, um, the end of King Lear where Ed Edmund says, "You like fortune's wheel has turned. It's left me here at the bottom again." Like I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the quote, but you know, it's like. I went round on the wheel, came up in the top, and now at the end, I'm lying broken at the bottom of the wheel. And obviously, you know, like, Fortune's Wheel is a big, big thing. Um, the Wheel of Fortune. You know, it's in the tarot cards as well. 
which Taro and Tarok, the progenitor of that, are, you know, they're quite old. I don't know, it could, yeah, it could be that, and because fantasy borrows from a lot of, well, at least at the time, you know, like, it's diversified now, but it borrowed just from a lot of medieval culture. So he's got, like, interesting, like, and kind of varied and dynamic motivations, because they kind of change slightly when the Red Army uprises. But, yeah, it it's strange, because I want to, like, because I think he's really cool, but then there's also, like, a trope, there's two separate tropes that I kind of want to, like, address before I get into it. Just to be like, I recognize they're kind of playing a factor in it. You know, the whole thing of like the kind of savagery, uh, you know, like of other cultures and stuff, you know, where yeah, his whole thing is like really, really vicious punishments of like cutting off people's like, you know, putting out people's eyes, cutting off their ears and their fingers or whatever, you know, like that kind of stuff. Uh, and there's a lot of that specifically with Mesoamerican cultures, like the Aztecs and stuff. And then also in in depictions of asian cultures um so there is that yeah and then also like in more modern like more modern media there's a lot of stuff that's been influenced by japanese mythology japanese media and whatever where they make like a really kind of like overpowered type of person with a sword which is you know it is a fetishization of that culture you know so i i realize like my appreciation of him of Lord Hong is slightly built on those things because of how he's presented. But again, he's pretty cool. He's just like needlessly badass. Like when he's making a sword and gets the messenger to stand real close and sees the assassin in his eyes and then cools the sword in his blood when he stabs him. Ah, that's pretty cool. He's also like, he's got no mystical powers. Yeah, and where he gives the order by having the origami with the guy without yeah. the head because he said he wouldn't say it or write it down. Yeah. What did you think about his obsession with Ankh-Morpork and Vetinari specifically? Oh, he's right there. Ah! Leave, please. Just leave me alone. <laughs> he's, oh, he's right there. Um, Sorry, what was the question? What did you think about his obsession with Ankh Morpork and with Vetinari specifically? I thought that was interesting. It's slightly sorry, this is I feel like a lot of like like uh what's the Andradenland, that's the word. I was about to say endorphins, um, from that wasp. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because it was felt slightly cute where he's like just really into Ankh Morpork, but it's Something that's not really presented as much, you know, this weird, like, fixation with how other cultures are, you know, like, the way that people viewed Asia, you know, specifically because of how Ankh-Morpork is, it's very, like, Victorian London, which had a lot of, and this ended up in, like, the Penny Dreadful books, the, you know, the fear of reverse colonization. Mm -hmm. This is kind of that turned back around and focusing on Ankh-Morpork. And it's kind of like, it's really interesting that he's like tr really trying to put on an Ankh Morpork accent and he's got like Ankh Morpork nobility dress, you know, where he's like, he puts it on, but it's like secret. Yeah, but he also has this like fantasy about playing chess with Vetinari that I just find fascinating. It's, I yeah. feel like he is slightly obsessed with Vetinari in like a like psychosexual kind of way because he. Yeah. Views Vetinari as, like, the one person who could actually give him a run for his money intellectually, which is true. Yeah. 
like because they they do the same thing in the same way that Vorbis and and Veterinary do kind of the same thing, but like the way he's done it, you know, like I'm pretty sure they talk about it in this that you know, like you've tricked people into, or it might have been a TikTok I was watching, but the the thing still applies where he's basically tricked the people of Ankh-Morpork into, like, governing themselves as effectively as, like, having a full-on despot. You know, like, the introduction of the guilds, and that basically regulates the crime in the city through the Thieves' Guild and annual quotas and stuff. You know, and so it's, like, it's really effective. His, you know, Fedenari's mind is constantly described as, like, you know, an iron box, loads of moving pieces and stuff, so it definitely... Definitely, he feel, I feel this feels like like BBC Sherlock's vor- version of Moriarty. And I think you're right to compare the two of them because they both have this way of getting people to do what they want. But Hong uses fear, which Vetinari is not opposed to using. But I think Vetinari has figured out that self-interest is perhaps a better motivator than fear. And hmm. so... It's interesting to see these two characters, like you said, with Borbis and Vetinari, and the ways in which they deploy these like different tactics for the same strategy, if that makes sense. Yeah. And because we've seen as well, like the different ways that Vetinari gets about stuff. Like, I mean, in The Color of Magic is a very different version of Vetinari where he threatens Rincewind, which is, you know, basically... Mm-hmm a one-off thing. He's never liked that again in the series so far that we've read. And then the way he goes about... Well, there is that moment in Guards, Guards where he's like, here's the system now. Oh, and by the way, I know where you all live. There is, like, that moment. But, yeah, it's not as explicit. And then the other way he does it, which is, like, you know, I suppose the opposite of self-interest, like, self-disinterest, I don't know. Where you know, where he just tells um Vimes, don't go after this, you don't want to investigate. You know, and like taking trying to take his, his badge and sword off of him. I mean, he learned that that's not an effective way of doing things. And he gets shot for it. But he had the right idea in terms of he knows that Vimes isn't the same as like the guild leaders, that you can't use the same tactics on. I think Vetinari Vetinari, unlike Hong watches people and he tries to understand them and their different nuances and he's got a curiosity that I don't think Hong has. Hong is very smart and he understands that one strategy to control people is through fear and through disinformation. Mm. But that's the only strategy that he knows. That's the only tactic I should say that he knows he tried that first, saw, oh, that works, and then went, yeah. I think the other person that Hong is being compared to here is Cohen. And I'm wondering if you saw any of those parallels as well. I mean, not really, I guess because... I, I don't know. I guess because I wasn't really thinking them as diametric opposites. That's... Uh, I mean, that's on me for not considering it. it, it I was like, well... They're opposed to one another because they both kind of want to rule Bangor Duk um, and the Empire, but I kind of, because I was more so focused on the conflict between Rincewind and Hong. But yeah, now that you're like actually drawing attention to it, there are a lot of parallels, and especially like, 
you know, with the Red Army and the campaigns of misinformation and how they both go about doing it in like really similar ways. And it's, I suppose it comes back to, you know, that, that question, what's the difference between, uh, like a resistance fighter and a terrorist? Like if Hong represents like that Game of Thrones, everything is subterfuge. Everything is a, is a game. Everything is like trying to get power. Cohen is like the opposite of that in terms of he does want power and he does want this empire, but there's an honesty to him that Hong doesn't really have. And that gets brought up a lot in this book. But I especially thought it was interesting the way that like Cohen gets so angry when Hong implies that his soldiers are worthless like he's just like no like that you can't call your own men scum like you have to be willing to like charge into battle with them right like it's actually important that they're not just like extensions of yourself that they're their own people and i felt like that really threw back to me the idea of troll bridge and the conversation he has with the troll about like the the being part of an army and like yeah sure there were kings and maybe a few wizards but that's not really like that wasn't our business like right like we we were just mm. like the foot soldiers and so like that i thought was interesting as well as his absolute disgust at hong trying to poison him the idea of poisoning food which is like a important resource and like a human right or a living beings right to food and interfering with that was like absolutely anathema to him and especially because i'm doing a stormlight archive reread now like it's really like have you read stormlight archives i have not ah so the character of dalinar is like he's trying to be really noble he follows this like set of like beliefs called the the alethi codes and it's like a lot of that, it, but one of the main things that he holds, which is why he doesn't use. So his main like rival in in the first book is this guy called Sadius, who expends an awful lot of like soldiers and bridgemen's lives trying to get across these plateaus, like a needless waste of lives. Whereas Dalinar uses like a much slower method of getting there because one of the core things is like don't do anything that you wouldn't expect your soldiers yourself to do. You know, right. Like if you wouldn't if you wouldn't do it yourself, don't make your soldiers do it. And that like I mean, I think Cohen understands that people and if this like it, this benefits having read Trollbridge before, you know, like mm-hmm. he understands that soldiers are just people, even if they're on the opposite side. Because like I mean, especially in America now, there's so many different reasons why people are in the military, you know, because they they could want to be in the military or it could be something as simple as like they have no home to go to and the military will provide them housing and food. They get recruited out of high school. And, you know, like there's loads of reasons why people are in the army, but it doesn't make them any less human. Right. Sorry, not to bring up the U.S. military. No, no. I mean, like, I that is a very good point. And like, the people on the ground aren't always involved in the machinations of the people up top, right? Like they're not, that's not what they're Mm. actually invested in. And so it's, it is an interesting comparison. I think, um, what did you think about Cohen and the hordes role in this book? 
I thought it was strange at first, in like having the thread of a horde, because it's like my main thing was like, well, what is the Argentine Empire meant to represent? Because like a lot of it is very Japanese, and this you know the Japanese isolationism, uh, and I was like, so why are we doing also a story about you know like the Mongol invasion of China? So the Horde was a strange one, but also like with the exception of Caleb, um, all the characters are really, really endearing. And there's a bit like just over about three quarters of the way through the book where they're they're like they look out and they're like, oh, it's just seven men, you know, and they're like, oh, well, they say they're so old they can't even die. It feels also like the Magnificent Seven slightly. Yeah. Survival's become a habit to them. Yeah. Speaking of Trollbridge, Cohen basically says at the beginning of the book to Rincewind that he decided to go to the counterweight continent because of the events of Trollbridge, because there there were too many farms and too many changes to the original landscape. Yeah, I mean, like, and because we haven't seen Cohen outside of Trollbridge, we haven't seen him outside of the main books since The Light Fantastic when he got his teeth, right? Uh, and he's referenced, yeah, he's referenced in sorcery because um, Kanina is his daughter. And he's kind of like referenced throughout because he's this, you know, basically legendary figure. And so, you know, you have a genuine character arc for a character who doesn't appear in the main books, you know, for all of like, there's a 15 book gap in between when he first appears and when he next appears in the main series. And then a lot of his, a lot of his dialogue is the fact that, like, so many of his barbarian friends are dead, and he doesn't even realize. That whole part at the end where he's, like, listing people, and they're telling him, oh, this person's dead, and this person's dead, and really, we're the only ones left. That was actually very sad. Yeah. Yeah, like, that was really sad, because then it's also, like, even when they're talking about Rune, which we have, who we haven't seen since... Uh, the color of magic, you know, he's not dead, but he's settled down. And it's very like, this feels also like the rock and roll lifestyle where all of your, you know, there's a, my chemical romance lyric where it's like from um, disenchanted where it's like, so I can watch how my heroes sell a car on TV. Yeah. We do get closure on Haroon. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure there's like a, a massive content, you know, the, the Haroon massive, um, who are dying for closure on his character. You know, because, like, the last time we saw him, he was just really content to have photos taken of him. I'm sure he still is. Like, it, it does feel like that, like, sports hero who, like, gets, like, a used car franchise and, like, settles down, but, like, people still want photos with them. Yeah, and actually, that reminds me of a Mountain Goat song. I was going to... I forgot to reference a Mountain Goat song when we were talking about Lord Hong. But yeah, so the Mountains have an album called Beat the Champ, and it's all about, like, the wrestling, like, the TV wrestling, like, the old kind of, like, Spanish TV wrestling that John Darnielle watched as a kid growing up. And so there's a lot of that. Like, the ballad of Chavo Guerrera is one, but, like, that's kind of the one that everyone knows, where it's like, you know, they say he got famous, uh, they say his son got famous, he went nationwide, coast to coast with his dad by his side. I don't know if that's true. I've been told it's real sweet to grow old. And there's another, I can't remember which song it is, but it's like a father writing in his diary that his son got him before he goes out 
to like have a wrestling match that may end his career. But I was going to quote from the Ballad of Bull Ramos, where he's like, you know, he was a wrestler and now he's just doing like he's his truck driver now, and he's kind of fallen out of the public consciousness, uh, and then he gets really he ends up in a uh, having to go to hospital, work days, work nights, finally get laid up by a piece of broken glass on the floor of the shop. And the doctor recognizes me as the operating theater grows dim. Aren't you that old wrestler with the bullwhip? Yes, sir, that's me. I'm him. And then the chorus is, never die, never die. Stand with a bullwhip in my hand and rise, rise, surrounded by friends. This is Bull Ramos. He's a real dude who died in 2006 from a massive infection. Had no idea. Yeah, that really hooks in with what Teach says at one point when he thinks that they're going to, like, run away or steal stuff and leave, where he's just like, people just think you're legends. Like, I've taught kids who just think that you're already dead. And, like, when you actually die, no one's going to miss you because they, they really actually think you're already dead. Like, they think that all the stuff that you did wasn't real or just legendary or whatever. And that, I think, does hook into this idea of like the old hero or the old celebrity or whatever where like you have people who vaguely know who you are but like are surprised when it's like oh this person's dead oh he was still alive like that's that is like a real reaction that a lot of people have towards legends I suppose I love Matt Hamish can I just say he's one of my favorites yeah Matt Hamish is great He's disabled. He has tricked out his wheelchair with like blades on the wheels and he has like any number of weapons underneath that blanket. And I love that in the conversations when they're talking about things, just every once in a while you'll hear what? <laughs> and then they're like shouting at him because he's deaf. Like I, mm. I liked Matt Hamish. Matt Hamish was great. Did you notice that Matt Hamish was at Coombe Valley, although it is unclear what side he was fighting for? <laughs> The side, yeah, the side that he was getting paid to fight for is the side he was on. Yeah. <laughs> Which kind of as well goes back to Cohen's point in Trollbridge. I mean, like, mercenary work as well. You know, it, like, you, you end up fighting for a cause because they're paying you. You have no actual allegiance to either side. But, you know, it's going to give you money for, I don't know, put food on the table, shelter over your head. No, it's just we have this, like... There's memes among my family, and there's one that started with, like, my sister and us, where, like, that has the same energy. Like, Matt Hamish, you do realize that um, Coombe Valley was trolls versus dwarves, and he goes, yeah, I was there, where my sister went, Ant-Man, yeah, I seen him. (laughs) I like it. That's great. I just finished the first season of Our Flag Means Death this morning, actually, and I actually, so it may be, it may be just that I was watching it at the same time that I was reading this book, but I get a lot of Our Flag Means Death vibes between Cohen and Teach because I feel like there's a lot of Teach trying to teach, trying to teach Cohen to Uh be civilized, right? He like makes the lists of words that they can't use and you know, all this stuff, but Cohen is like teaching him to be a barbarian. And so like, there's a lot of like that kind of energy. And I love the description that teach gives of Cohen, uh, where when six beneficent winds 
like becomes impressed with Cohen. Teach like remembers that he when he met Cohen that he just like immediately decided to go with him because he couldn't remember a single day of his life that had been any fun. It dawned on him that he could join the horde or go back to school and pretty soon a limp handshake, a round of applause and his pension. It was something about Cohen. Maybe it was what they called charisma. It overpowered even his normal smell of a goat that had just eaten curried asparagus. He did everything wrong. He cursed people and used what Mr. Savoy considered very offensive language to foreigners. So there's that joke again, unfortunately. He shouted terms that would have earned anyone else a free slit throat from a variety of interesting ethnic weapons. And he got away with it, partly because it was clear there was no actual malice there, but mainly because he was, well, Cohen, a sort of basic natural force on legs. It worked on everything. When he wasn't actually fighting them, he got along. He got on a lot better with trolls than did people who merely thought that trolls had rights just like everyone else. Even the horde, bloody-minded individualists to a man, fell for it. And so, like, this idea of, like, Cohen having, like, this natural charisma that just, like, pulls in people around him. And, like, I, I don't know. That just really reminded me of that main relationship from Our Flag Means Death. What is the ship name for that? Black Bonnet, I think? Steed Bonnet ship? Yeah. As in, yeah, I between him and Blackbeard. No, the the ship between oh, the him and Blackbeard. The ship. The, you're talking about a show that has ships, but you're talking about the ship. I think it is Black Bonnet. Which, can I just say that Taika Watiti in a beard and black leather really does it for me? <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite things about the design for him is that they've given him, like, nautical tattoos, but then it's also, like, very clear where his actual tattoo is, like, the the black line around it, and it, it's incorporated really, really well, actually. That's the thing I keep noticing everything, every time he's on the screen. I'm like, oh, I can see that. Yeah, it's like that, but then it's also like, you know, at the start of episode one where the crew of the Revenge is threatening, or is like, to, you know, brewing mutiny, and then they're like, well, we gotta, we gotta, you know, kill him. And then, is it Frenchie who's like, if you, you know, if you do that, like, only he can, only he can do the voices of the little, of the little puppet man. Yeah, he's the, he's the only one who knows. And they, they he asks another one, like, can you do it? And he tries to do it. And he's like, no, it's not the same. It's not the yeah. same. But yeah, also R.A.P. Teach. Very sad that, was, that Teach yeah. dies. And he doesn't realize it. And he, but he gets taken away to the hero heaven by the Valkyrie. And I like that he's planning on, like, starting to teach night classes. <laughs> In, I mean, like, it seemed like he found a really good, like, he found a good purpose at the end of his life, which I, you know, I like that. Yeah, like, I mean, we also see the return of the sands, like the big desert yes. from the end of uh, Small Gods. And that's, like, interesting as well, because, like, the way Death talks about it there, you know, where he talks about, like, oh, well... You know, time is really relative, and, and everyone takes their own different amount of times to cross the desert, you know. even You know, like, even in spite of its infinite size. You know, it's just, like, makes me think again of, you know, like, at the end where, where um, Vorbis is still there, despite the fact that um, Brother has lived basically, like, a hundred years. And so he's he, he'll never find his way out. It reminds me as well of how Granny Weatherwax just gets out of the the mirror maze by deciding which way she wants to go. Yeah. 
Yeah, like, he's decided that he's going to, like, and he feels enough like a warrior that he warrants the warrior's afterlife. Even though, like, he's really kind of at odds with how they, like, how the, the Horde behaves. But, like, the Horde has been better students for him than any of his previous students. Like, he's still a teacher, is the thing. It's not like he just leaves teaching behind, but he has found a place where he can teach the way that he feels. He can teach things that he thinks are important, and he can do it to students who actually are good people and good students instead of, like, having to deal with all the bureaucracy that he hates. And so I think he sees, like, the warrior heaven as a place to continue that work. Yeah. Which is interesting. It does also bring up the, the like, good place idea of learning after death. Like, can you learn after you die? Is, like, the after place a place that you can actually still grow? Because mm. we tend to think of death as, like, that's it. Like, and yeah, then you are who you are. static. If you believe in the afterlife, you a lot of cultures just believe that that's it. You just go to your place and that's where you are. But, like, this idea of, like, teach, actually teaching. Yeah. Although, like, like, even though we have Death as a sentient character in this, like, up until now, we basically haven't gotten any kind of indication that there's more than one type of afterlife, depend like, but that's belief dependent. Because mm-hmm. before we've only been seen, we've only been shown the sands, you know, and death does collect all the souls, but it's just like one death because most of them are humans and you have death of rats and whatever. And like the lifetimers, they don't, they don't even die. They, they just get flipped back over and go back out because they've got a season ticket. Um, mm. So yeah, like it, it's nice to see representation of the fact that other beliefs have other outlives or afterlives and other like traditions which is now a big thing that people are saying about marvel because we have the afterlife in black panther which i've forgotten the name but it's based off of an actual you know real life afterlife and then you have the field of reeds which was just in moon knight right the egyptian afterlife it's interesting the way that afterlife works because there is in the discworld because there is like this element of belief to it But there's also evil people don't just go to what they believe because like at one point when death is talking to teach, he's like, you know, uh, teach is like, oh, well, Hong doesn't believe in ghosts. And death says, well, there's plenty of ghosts here who believe in Mr. Hong or or who believe in Lord Hong. So like, I just, I think that's interesting. That actually reminded me a lot of the concept of hell and Lucifer. Like the idea that like hell is actually you like punishing yourself over and over again for like your worst moment. Lucifer at one point says, like, that's the funny part about hell is that you can walk out any time, but you get, like, caught in this loop of, like, you th- you think you deserve to be there eventually. So I think that that's interesting, like, the idea of, like, ghosts believing in Lord Hong. <laughs> like, he's killed so many people and they believe in him and they get their version of an afterlife, which is to punish him. Yeah, I don't think Veterinary will have that. I hope Veterinary doesn't die, but should he die, I don't. Even with the numerous people that he's probably killed, I feel like the way he conducts his business doesn't warrant that kind of belief from ghosts. I also just kind of feel like Vetinari will run his afterlife. Like, <laughs> like he'll just figure out a way to make it work. Yeah, he'll... But he'll go in and they'll be like, well, this is the afterlife. And he's like, well, actually, I've designed the afterlife and all the bolts are on the inside, so... um, 
Well, we should really talk about Rincewind since he is the main character of this book, even though I don't think he's the most interesting character in this book, which I think is part of the problem. I mean, he was there. No, I suppose it should actually like be serious. But I, I mean, it really felt like he was, a, uh, especially in this book, like a passenger in the backseat yeah. of his own story. Like, I mean, he was an Eric, but I mean, that was kind of the point because he was being towed around by Eric. But yeah, this one, he felt like he was just kind of being led along. But also, what really struck me, uh, and this is kind of like what made me think at the end, you know, like where Two Flowers like, well, has it ever occurred to you that maybe you're, you deserve something nice in life and that it shouldn't be this endless stream of uh, like unhappiness and, and misfortune happening to you? And Rincewind is like, no, it's not. This isn't my dreams. I thought it was hilarious, uh, his interactions with the Unseen University faculty, especially uh, Red Cully, who had never actually met. I had forgotten that they had never actually met each other until rereading yeah. this book. But I love how they are basically like, hey, buddy. And he's like, oh, shit. Nobody ever wants me for anything nice. Like, they, <laughs> like, like he's always like something bad is about to happen. Like, they were going to ask me to go do something. Yeah. They're like, hey, Rinswin. And he's like, God, fuck it. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> and I like that that's the deal he negotiates with them. He's like, if I do this, I never have to leave. Uh, like, I don't have to go do anything. And they're like, we can make we can make it so that you, you're not allowed to leave this building if that's what will make you do it, if that makes you happy. <laughs> can we talk about also the incredibly soft moment where Rid Coley comes back from his meeting with Vetinari and says, who the hell is the great wizard spelled with two Z's? And the librarian like runs and gets the hat. It is like the librarian cares about Rincewind. He's been waiting. The whole paragraph leading up to the, you know, the reprise, shall we call it, of a wizard was always to be sh is always to be sure to return for his hat. You know, like that whole paragraph where he's running with it and they're like, well, we don't know. We don't know who he is. And he's, oh, it's so sad. He made himself a hat that says wizard while he was on the yeah. island. Oh, like this goes back to the whole thing, where, you know, like, and he, this ends up being a thing where it's like, well, he can't really wear a hat that says wizard when he goes to the Agitian Empire because that'll give it away because he's meant to be in stealth. But he feels like he needs this hat. And then, of course, Ridcully gets him with, well, actually, it's a crime to impersonate a wizard. Unless, you know, unless you <coughs> do some service benefiting the university. <coughs> yeah, I loved that paragraph where he's thinking about it, where he's like weighing his options. And it's like, what could they do? They could just take his hat away and stop him ever coming back to the university. Now that he came to think about it, they probably wouldn't be bothered about the nailing bit if he was too much bothered to find. And that was the problem. He wouldn't be dead, but then neither would he be a wizard. And he thought, as the wizards shuffled into position and screwed down the knobs on the end of their staffs, not being able to think of himself as a wizard was being dead. The fact that Rincewind is so invested in this identity of himself as a wizard, like he just knows that he is a wizard, even though he has not performed magic, really, except for, you know, a couple of accidental times. Like, it is just such a huge part of his identity that even Rincewind, a person who is so reluctant to get involved in any of these things, 
is motivated to do so because not being a wizard would be as good as being dead. Rinsman doesn't really have like a plot arc in this book so much, but he does have a character arc. Uh, and it's strange that they've decided that it's like it's one or the other because his character arc isn't really tied into anything really. Like he's, it's tied into the fact that like the university leverages his like need for validation in his identity into getting him there. And then at the end, Two Flower talks to him. I suppose Two Flower is the only person really who he can talk to other than the librarian. Cause like Two Flower is technically his oldest friend. <laughs> Although when he sees the, the book, what I did on my holidays, <laughs> what I did on he's my just holidays. like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. I love, he's like only an idiot. Oh, there's only one person who could have written this. Oh, when he's reading it and he's like, and nobody attacked me. And Rincewind's like, that's because it was happening to me. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, there are some good Rincewind moments in this. But I'm happy to report that I have my opinion on Two Flower has improved. Really? Um, I now enjoy, I'm a Two Flower enjoyer. Ooh. Yeah, actually. What What changed your mind? I don't know. He just, he, he feel like, an actual character here now and because like like when he's put into the dungeon and then they're like so people just get put into the dungeon to get forgotten about and uh, like you know they're there for ages he's like yep pretty much and we get fed sometimes if they remember us like from that moment i was like okay that's like you know you know when they do like a legacy character and they come back and they're all grizzled all of a sudden like this is two flowers like grizzled moment he he's as grizzled, I think, as Two Flower can get, which is to say, not very. <laughs> yeah, he's like Two Flower. I haven't heard that name in years, and then like promptly proceeds to like hack up a lung because he's never smoked before, but he knows that that's what cool people do. <laughs> like you said, we get more of like. A background on him as a character because we get Lotus Blossom and Butterfly who are his daughters. Lotus Blossom definitely takes more after him and Butterfly takes more after Rincewind supposes after her mother. And we also get this revenge narrative where you find out that Lord Hong is indirectly responsible for the death of Two Flowers' wife. And there's such like for a character that's so like innocent and like optimistic all the time there is a real thread of sadness in this character like he does not want to talk about his wife with with Rincewind he doesn't want to talk about how she died but at the end he's willing to stand up to Lord Hong knowing that he'll probably die because he's like somebody has to like someone has to remember her he doesn't yeah and especially for a character which we you know who we haven't really seen you know, again, like it's the same with Cohen. They're like, you know, they're get just they're just getting character arcs all of a sudden that feel real and feel earned. Like he's not just someone wandering clueless through life. He is that, but there are like real stakes for him in that life. Yeah, him and Rincewind, like they're ha they're from the same mold, and I feel like they've kind of learned one from the other. Where that, like, I mean, this is the thing I always say about Rincewind. He's like, I mean, he doesn't want to, but he's going to be the one to step up to do the right thing. And so, like, someone needed to step up to Lord Hong. This is also uh, a big part of uh, the character of Kaladin, actually, in um, the Stormlight Archives. 
where he feels the need to be like the one person who does right because no one else will. You know, and like I mean, Two Flower was the one who raced towards you know the Dungeon Dimensions creatures in the Light Fantastic, and then Rinsun's like, well, fine, I guess I'll go after him. I love the scene in this book where. Rincewind is like yelling at them and it's just like, this is not my problem. Like, no, like, no, like, you're not going to like get me to feel like I need to be part of this. And then Two Flowers just sitting there smiling and he like tells Lotus Blossom and Butterfly. He always says that. And then he does something heroic. <laughs> like He always yeah. says this. But then when we actually need him, he's there. I think my problem with Rincewind in this book is he has some really great moments. He's very insightful in this book about a lot of things. He instantly understands what's wrong with the Agitean Empire, like the whips and the souls and the way that in obedience has like broken these people's spirits. And he also understands some really insightful stuff about revolutions, which I definitely want to talk about as well. But my problem with Rincewind is that just like Eric, this feels like a real regression from the character that we saw at the end of Sorcery. And we talked about this a little bit in Eric in terms of he feels like a very traumatized character from his time in the Dungeon Dimensions, even though he doesn't really mention it in this book. You can see the effect it had on him of having to run away so much, you know, for however long he was in there. And like the terror of that has definitely cemented certain attitudes of, you know, running away, of not getting involved in things, etc. But at the same time, it feels kind of disappointing. Like it feels like, okay, this is hmm. I understand that this is like a trauma response, but like where's the person who sacrificed himself for coin? Like, where is that person? Because even at the end of this book. I was waiting for that moment. And then at the end of this book, it's like, oh, you found a weapon and you used it. Cool. Like, I, I just, to me, that seemed really disappointing. Yeah, Rinsen shouldn't be able to use weapons. Yeah, it's just it just seemed like he stumbled into the solution to the problem and he used it because it was there, not because he decided it was really the right thing to do. It feels like Rincewind as a character has become really static and I don't like it. I felt like there was a lot more of an arc over the course of the first three books than there has been since. Yeah, and especially because, like, he, like you said, he doesn't mention it, but they could have done something in the same way that Two Flower doesn't want to talk about his wife. And, like, Rinsman brings up the fact that you've never meant, you know, he, you've never mentioned her, and now he won't because she's dead. So they could, like, I mean, between this and Eric, they could have had him dealing with his trauma, but not, like, talking about it. Because, like, I mean, right. people process trauma differently. People grieve, you know, like, grief isn't uh, lateral or unilateral from our last episode. But still, like, it feels like there's a bunch of missed opportunities. Yeah, it just feels like this whole book, he's just sort of floating from one situation to the next and not really, like, investing in anything. Yeah, Rincewind is also here. Yeah, I mean, and it's like, I mean, he, he kind of starts to when he does the campaign of misinformation against the five armies that are outside where he does the whole thing about the vampire ghosts, which, like you said, is very funny, like where he's like, they are definitely not, what is it, 2,330 
1,009. There are definitely not that many ghosts like on their way. That was really great, but that felt like the most active thing he did in the whole book. The rest of it just felt very passive and very like the same joke over and over and over again. And I just like, and I get it. I get that that's like his character, but I felt, I just feel like there, I feel like there was growth and then we backslid into some of his worst tendencies. And so like, Mm. you don't have to erase that part of the character, but you need to give us like something. Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, the podcast where we discuss all 41 of the Discworld books. Today we're discussing Interesting Times, the 17th Discworld book and first and only book in the Cohen the Barbarian series. <laughs> I mean, pretty much at this point. Like, it's their book. And yeah, like, it, it feels slightly earned for them because, like, this would make sense if it, it, if this came directly after color of Ma- color of magic light fantastic but it doesn't there's other books in the way not just in terms of series but like in the rincewind books it's a rincewind book because rincewind is in it but at the same time if you wanted to do it like you could just say it's an unseen academic or unseen a- academy book because yeah. i know that that's what they do slightly later right where they're like this is a book that's just about the people in the university Right. And a lot of people do like to classify these books as unseen university books rather than Rincewind books. And I think that especially considering this one, that's probably a smart move. But also, like, I mean, the fact that now the Discworld is more open and we kind of talked about this, like, like, Ankh-Morpork feels more like an open city. The, 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 The broad classifications of books doesn't feel as relevant now as it did in the early books, where it's like all of the characters are there, like Venonari's in this one. You know, and like, I mean, last book, we had the wizards from the university and also the city watch in a death book. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of like little cameos in here because you have like Moto is in this. Like we said, Rid Cully and the faculty are in it, which, by the way, one of the funniest parts of this to me was when Ponder is like really like testily explaining all of the like complex magical physical things that happened in the triangle when they were trying to transport Rincewind back and the bursar just totally understands what he just said. I I thought that was hilarious. Like that the bursar has become now like completely untethered from time, much in the same way that old mother Dismas uh, from the witches books has, but he, he totally gets what Ponder is talking about. Yeah. Is it Mrs. Cake who's got her foresight on? Yes. I mean, that's magic, but like, I mean, he's having his whole conversations in reverse. He's going backwards in time. Yeah, like, it, basically the idea is is that, like, he's responding to a conversation, you just don't really know when the conversation is happening anymore. But yeah, you have all of the faculty, you have... You know, we, you do have these, like, little cameos to things. You have Vetinari, like you said. You Leonard of Quirm gets mentioned at one point. Bloody Stupid Johnson is also mentioned um, because he built the the structure that Vetinari keeps the messenger pigeons in, although he originally meant it to be a beehive, but it was, like, made for bees that were, like, eight feet long. Like, all of that. All of those stuff are in there. And I, I like the idea of, like, the Discworld is like an open world shared universe now. 
What did you think about the frame of this? Because we return to the fate versus the lady playing games with the destinies of humanity and they're playing empires, right? We've seen this conflict before. We've seen this conflict before in other Rincewind books. And like, I mean, they talk about Rincewind being the lady's piece. And oh, you've lost the lady's piece and you've lost, you know, the la- the lady, you've lost your piece. Uh, and she's like, well, I'm not, I'm not winning, but I don't, I play not to not lose. And so, like, it seems like, you know, that it, Rincewind should be more involved. Like, I mean, that's my thing about it. Because before the gods were playing and it was Rincewind, like, beginning his character arc and being framed as, like, he's the protagonist and that's why he's, you know, being favored as, like, this piece in the gods game. And now that he doesn't feel like the main character of his own books, it's kind of like, well, what's the point? Because if you had that and then it ended up being, like, the lady and the gods choose, like, multiple pieces, and this ends up being, like, you know, the cast of characters in this book, it would make sense. But the fact that that scene happens just as, like, Rincewind is gone, and then he appears in 4X, it's like, God, I wish Rincewind were the protagonist of this book. Yeah, it does feel a little strange. I mean, the only explanation I can come up with is the same one that Death comes up with, where he tells War, now that Rincewind is here, even uncertainty is uncertain. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Even uncertainty is uncertain. I'm not even certain about that. Yeah. That's the only thing I can think of is that, like, especially because Rincewind is very much paired with the butterfly, the quantum weather butterfly, (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. We finally get to see that bastard butterfly that's been causing all those storms. Yeah. So, I mean, like, this is classic Discworld humor, right? Like, everybody knows the phrase, like, a butterfly flaps its wings and a storm, you know, destroys a city. This is the... Because it's Discworld, there's an actual butterfly, right? Like, it's not a metaphor. (laughs) But, yeah, like, I, I agree with you, though, that that's the only explanation of why perhaps the lady would see Rincewind as a piece is that fate is so certain, right? Like fate is like, this is the track. This is where we're going to go, which is why he wins against all the other gods. Whereas the lady represents uncertainty. Rincewind represents uncertainty. And so does the butterfly because the butterfly is a disruptive force. Yeah. So like it's, it's certainty versus disruption. I have to say though, uh, I loved the scene at the beginning where they're describing the gods' games. And first of all, the fact that they're playing Clue at the beginning is hilarious. But then, like, the other really funny thing is Io, who is clearly supposed to be Zeus. Like, I mean, Io has been identified with Zeus. He's, like, the king of the gods since the beginning, since Color of Magic. But I loved the the part where they're, like... Also, isn't Io a moon of Jupiter? Yeah, Io is a moon of Jupiter. It's in Greek mythology, she's actually a I want to say she's a nymph, but she's like one of Zeus's like paramours. Um he turns her into a cow to hide her from Hera. Mm. It's a long story. Anyway, so like it is kind of like a Zeus reference to call this character Io, but I love the part where they're like he had little involvement with individual humans. He generally looked after thunder and lightning. So from his point of view, the only purpose of humanity was to get wet or in occasional cases charred. 
And I felt like that was such a perfect description of Zeus as a character. Yeah, except this Zeus doesn't want to, like, ruin the lives of every woman he comes into contact with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's also true. Which is the best version of Zeus. Yeah, it really is. It's a better version, actually. The other thing that I had in this was that... What is going on with the luggage in this book? I I don't, don't understand. Know. Why does the luggage need a romance story? I mean, I kind of understand the impulse behind this storyline because the luggage, by the time we get to Eric, has sort of become like an overpowered deus ex machina machine. Like, it mm. has gotten to the point where almost any problem that Rincewind encounters can be solved by the angry luggage pursuing him throughout time and space. But, like, I don't... I And so, like, this seems like it's Pratchett trying to get that out of the way so he doesn't have to, like, deal with that, with the luggage being, like, this constant presence around Rincewind. Although I did like the Dean, like, trouble followed him around on little legs. Um, that was really great. But, yeah. like, I just, I don't understand it. I don't understand why the luggage thought, I need a romance. Or, like, and you know I like romance, but, like, I just, I don't understand it. I also prefer to think of the luggage as genderless. And this book tried really hard to make the luggage gendered. Although I guess it didn't actually say what the gender of the other luggage was. I don't know. I just, to me, this seemed like a strange thing. And if he was going to quit, if if the whole point was, oh, he's home now. And so he's going to quit because Rincewind isn't taking care of him. Why does he follow Rincewind at the end? Like, it just doesn't make sense to me as a plot line. Like, I mean, they go, they talk about, like, oh, well, women have bigger luggage because of all the, like, frills or whatever it is. Yeah, you know, so there you. is some, like, yeah. Not a fan. Like, it feels like the way that's written is someone, like, trying that in a sentence, you know, where they're, like, unsure whether they should say a sexist remark, and then they're, like, tentatively putting it out to see whether it'll float in a conversation, whether anyone will, like, you know, yeah, call him out on it. Like, you know, like, just, like, just, like I mean, obviously not a fan, but the way it's written and the way the sentence is structured with the hyphens and, like, commas and stuff feels very, like, women had bigger luggage for the frills. And then, like, leave it like that. Listeners can't see the face I'm making. But it's like, <laughs> yeah. The only explanation I could come up with is that again, this is from Rincewind's perspective, and what does Rincewind know? But yeah, not great, not great. Yeah. The only other thing I have to say about this book before we get to the end is that I did really enjoy that Ridcully kind of calls out the rest of the faculty on being part of the events of sorcery. I don't know if you noticed that, but like where he's just like, yeah, I heard that you all, and they're all like, oh, I was visiting my aunt or I was in my room. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure you were. Sure you were. Mm. Somebody at some point also says the lore is the lore, which is an equal rights reference, I feel. So it was just interesting to see both of those like callbacks in this. Yeah. Like, I mean, this book, like, Rincewind's whole thing is, like, trying to learn self-acceptance. 
and like overcome trauma that he's not dealing with and the narrative doesn't make him deal with in any way, shape or form. Uh, but his character arc demands it. Um, and then the Unseen University is like, well, someone needs to take some accountability before that. Because, like, even in um, Eric, when they're like, Rinswin is coming back, they're like, well, oh, you know, like, and they don't want to uh, own up to the fact that they're a large part of why sorcery happened the way it did. You know, where they're like, well, we're just going to say that Rinswin was, like, you know, a troublemaker and he doesn't get the big remembrance for sacrificing himself. And so Rid Cully is like, he's the only one who's going to call them out in their bullshit. Because his mind is too, like... he's It's too straight to understand the subterfuge that, like, Veterinary is laying down when he's talking to him. Oh my god, I forgot about that. That's hilarious. The thing that's not there. <laughs> yeah, a bird has not come from the Agitian Empire. A, the bird there. No. Not that bird. <laughs> yeah. No, not that bird. And it definitely hasn't delivered a letter. Oh, okay, no letter then. No letter, alright. Yeah, I and where he's trying to explain it to the, the Unseen University faculty, and they're like, could you maybe explain it with just, like, a little less discretion? But, yeah, I do think it's funny, though, that the book makes it very clear that Rid Coley was in no way, shape, or form part of the events of sorcery, which we've talked about before, but I like that, like... Rid Coley glared at his faculty with the clear, innocent glare of someone who was blessed at birth with no imagination whatsoever and who had genuinely, genuinely been hundreds of miles away during the university's recent embarrassing history. <laughs> like, he was genuinely not there. Yeah, because he was what? Like, just being Bear grills. Yeah, like out in the wilderness. Yeah, and I, I like that because one, I like we've said before, I think it was in Lords and Ladies, I really don't think that sorcery would have happened if Rid Coley had been Arch-Chancellor. It's just like Rid Coley is, he's just not that kind of person. He would not have gotten involved in this. And I just, I think that's funny. Yeah, that child would have walked through the door and straight away he would have been, nope. Nope, nope, not gonna happen. It seems to be that this boy is cursed. That staff is speaking from his dead father. Nope. No imagination. So there's two death sightings, which don't happen until quite late in the book. But the first one is when Rincewind is on the battlefield doing misinformation about the vampire ghosts. He runs across death and war, riding amongst the 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 group and i like that like death sort of pretends that he doesn't know who rincewind is at first <laughs> like rincewind isn't it but then like when he's talking to war yeah. later he's like that guy that guy i also like that he genuinely at this point doesn't seem to know rin when rincewind is going to die like he actually looks at rincewind's lifetimer and is just like well since i'm here and rincewind's like no for, this is this is so much fuel onto my Rincewind and Death Enemies to Lovers arc. It's ridiculous. That one scene where he's just like talking and he says something to him and then he knows that it's death and he goes, ah, what? Yeah, <laughs> he's just like only one person speaks like that. But they've run across each other yeah. so many times now. It's like they do have this interesting relationship that has developed. And like death introduces him to war. Who introduces him to his children. Which War's daughter Clancy is one of my favorite jokes. 
Panic and Terror and then Clancy. And I like that she's like eight and has like her pony like badge and like it's great. And she just has this like bored look on her face. The other death sighting is, of course, when death shows up to take Teach, Mr. Savaloy, and explains to him about the desert. We've already talked about that a little bit, but those are the two death sightings in this. One mention of sort in this book. It's a part of a list. So like when it's describing the geography of the Discworld, there is the Circle C approximately halfway between the hub and the rim. Around it are those countries which, according to history, constitute the civilized world, i.e. a world that can support historians. Afivi, Sort, Omnia, Clatch, and the sprawling city-state of Ankh-Morpork. So there you go. One Sort reference. No reference to the pyramids of Sort. No, but they're there. And the first footnote is actually on the very first page of the novel. So when talking about the gods playing games, yes. Fate wins. At least so it is claimed. Whatever happens, they say afterwards, it must have been fate. Footnote. People are always a little confused about this, as they are in the case of miracles. When someone is saved from certain death by a strange concatenation of circumstances, they say that it's a miracle. But of course, if someone is killed by a freak chain of events, the oil spilled just there, the safety fence broken just there, that must also be a miracle. Just because it's not nice doesn't mean it's not miraculous. I liked that. That was a good footnote, I think, because it's like the idea of like, well, there's nothing in the definition of miracle that says it has to be a good thing. <laughs> what was your favorite footnote? One of the things about this book as well, like you mentioned the the death sightings all take place like really close to the end. Most of the footnotes in this book take place near the start of the book. Oh yeah, the, my favorite one, I have this listed now. Um, uh, this at least was true. Rincewind could scream for mercy in 19 languages and just, and just scream in another 44. That's my favorite one, but also <laughs> I feel the need to read the other, the footnote that's in that one, which is, this is important. Inexperienced travelers might think that ah is universal, but in Betrabi it means highly enjoyable, and in Hawandaland it means variously, I would like to eat your foot, your wife is a big hippo, and hello, thanks Mr. Purple Cat. One particular tribe has a fearsome <laughs> reputation for cruelty merely because prisoners appear to them to be shedding quick, extra boiling oil. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I do like that. Like, screams can mean different things. Yeah, and so actually, if you keep the um, screams of the wasp showing up, I mean, people can decide what those screams mean to them. Right. That could be like extra bonus content information for this podcast. You just have to decipher what it means. Yeah. So my favorite footnote is actually near the very beginning. And the reason why I chose it isn't just because it's funny, but because I think it means something different now than it did when this book was originally published in 1994. In the world of post-COVID, saying that all virtual le lectures take place yeah. in 3B <laughs> means something very different. But yeah, like the, the whole idea of giving a lecture in 3B being code for like sleeping, I thought was great. So the chair of indefinite studies rubbed his leg. I know the lecturer in recent runes is giving a lecture in 3B, he said. Footnote. All virtual lectures took place in room 3B, a room not locatable on any floor plan of the university, and also it was considered infinite in size. That, I think, is a 
is a funny joke on its own, but the idea that we actually have virtual lectures now because of COVID and that Zoom rooms or like meet team meets rooms, all that stuff, like those are rooms of infinite sizes. I just want to start calling like, I got to go give a lecture in 3B and then go like, get on my. Go do a Zoom. Yeah, go do a Zoom. I forgot about this earlier in the episode, but I saw it because it was on the same page as that footnote. I do like that Rid Coley has come all the way around on the librarian as being an orangutan. Because remember, when he first showed up, he was just like, why is our librarian orangutan? And they had to like convince him like that it was a good idea. But then when the dean hmm. in this book is like... Is anyone else concerned? He, he actually says, am I alone in thinking, by the way, that it doesn't add to the status of this university to have an ape on the faculty? Yes, said Ridcoli flatly. You are. We've got the only librarian who can rip off your arm with his leg. People respect that. Only the other day, the head of the Thieves Guild was asking me if we could turn their librarian into an ape. And besides, he's the only one of you buggers who stays awake more than an hour a day. I like that Ridcoli has gone from, like, not being sure to just being like a 100% librarian sure. stan. Yeah. Aren't we all though? We are. What's mm. something that made you laugh out loud? But it's the it's the conversation between uh Rincewind and uh Two Flower at the end. Just cuz like that's such good banter. Two Flower looked around with some interest. I don't know why you think your life has been so bad, he said. We had a lot of fun when we were younger. Hey, do you remember that time when we went over the edge of the world? Often, said Rincewind, usually around 3am. And that time we were on a dragon and it disappeared in midair? You know, said Rincewind, sometimes a whole hour will go by when I don't remember that. And that time we were attacked by those people who wanted to kill us? Which of those 149 occasions are you referring to? Character building, that sort of thing, <laughs> said Two Flower happily. Maybe what I am today. Oh yes, said Rincewind. It was no effort talking to Two Flower. The little man's trusting nature had no concept of sarcasm and a keen ability not to hear things that might upset him. Yes, I can definitely say it was <laughs> that sort of thing that made me what I am today, too. Yeah, I think that the interaction between Two Flower and Rincewind is made even better by the way that both of them have completely different recollections of what actually happened in The Color of Magic and Light Fantastic. Mm. Spot on. Spot on banter. Top banter. So uh, the, the thing that made me laugh out loud, there's a lot of things that made me laugh out loud in this book, but the one that made me probably laugh the hardest was when they're talking about how it's when Lord Hong comes to like parley with the Horde and with Cohen. And they've already talked about how, like, if the Horde wanted to kill somebody at dinner, like, if a barbarian wants to kill someone at dinner, they would just invite them over, get them drunk, feed them a lot of food, and then just kill them, right? Like, that's what you do. You don't poison people. This is, like, the honest thing. And if you fall for that, then you kind of deserve to die, right? Yeah. But I, I loved the joke about how they're trying to parlay with Lord Hong. Mr. Savaloy tried to shut out the whispers behind him. Why don't we just invite them to dinner and massacre them when they're all drunk? You heard the man. There's 700,000 of them. Ah, so it'd have to be something simple with pasta then. Perfect joke. No notes. No notes on that joke. Like, if you ever had to feed a lot of people and you think, ah, yes, it'll have to be something simple with pasta then. 
they still think that plan could work with 7,000 people. You just have to have the right amount of pasta. You just got to find the right dish. There's no such thing as too much pasta. It's true. That is absolutely true. It could feed a lot of people. It's cheap. I don't want to say that like it's the solution to world hunger because that would be a very elitist thing to say, but it is actually cheap and it can feed a lot of people. So I understand. But also all of the interactions between like, like, like when they're at war between Cohen and the Horde and Hong, where he's like, raises the flag, goes over and he's like, oh, we're, you know, we're here to talk surrender. And he goes, okay, lay down your weapons. No, 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 no. You'd lay down yours. What? You said you were here to talk about surrender. Yeah, yours. Your surrender. I don't want to have to. Yeah, I don't want to kill more of your men. Yeah. Or the the, uh, the constant joke where when people tell Cohen that they're willing to die for their emperor, that he just immediately kills them because he takes them at their word. He's like, yeah, I would right, rather die. I can oblige. Yeah. And I like how eventually Teach is just like every time he comes in, he's like, be very careful how you answer that question. He will take you at your word. <laughs> What's something that made you think? What made me think was it was at the start of the campaign of misinformation. And like the whole thing is really fun, like how it happens. And also like it is kind of a commentary on how like fake news spreads, even if you're like trying actively not to or you seem like you're not to in this case. The four horsemen whose ride presages the end of the world are known to be death, war, famine and pestilence. But even less significant events have their own horsemen. For example, the four horsemen of the common cold are sniffles, chesty, nostril, and lack of tissues. The four horsemen whose appearance foreshadows any public holiday are storm, gales, sleet, and contraflow. Among the armies encamped in the broad alluvial plain around Hong Hong, the invisible horsemen known as misinformation, rumor, and gossip saddled up. It made me think just the way, like, the, the, like it's quite clear that this is, under, like, it's understood that this is how you start a campaign of misinformation and misinformation, rumor and gossip. But it made me think only because of like what era we're in now, the whole thing of like, you know, alternate facts and fake truth, you know, where you can just put out something on the news that's blatantly wrong. And then people start talking and gossiping about it. And then it's like, you know, like, I don't know, the president of your America gets up and t- of your America and t- gets up and tells yeah, people my they should. Yeah. <laughs> That tells people that they should drink bleach and it will help cure them of COVID. And then they're like, yeah, this sounds true because the president said it on national TV. And they do it. And then they end up getting hurt. Yeah. I mean, if I'm laughing about it because it's like a very bitter laugh. Like, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts yeah. of misinformation uh, about just all kinds of things about ra- like racist misinformation, actual public health misinformation. Our, the CDC is participating in that. Like it's, it's a big thing mm. here. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. Like some of this stuff gets more relevant with time. So the thing that made me think, and I, I mentioned this a little earlier, but I actually wanted to talk about it just very briefly here. I really thought that the whole thing about Rincewind talking to the Red Army, not the golems later, the the original Red Army here, about yeah. what they plan to do once they win, I thought that that was a very interesting and very insightful dialogue about revolutions and how they can very quickly turn into tyranny themselves. Look, he said, rubbing his forehead, all those people out in the fields, the water buffalo people, if you have a revolution, it'll, it'll all be better for them, will it? Of course, said Butterfly. They will no longer be subject to the cruel and capricious whims of the Forbidden City. 
Oh, that's good, said Ridswind. So they'll sort of be in charge of themselves, will they? Indeed, said Lotus Blossom. By means of the People's Committee, said Butterfly. Rinswin pressed both hands to his head. My word, he said, I don't know why, but I've had this predictive flash. They looked impressed. I had this sudden feeling, he went on, that there won't be all that many water buffalo string holders on the People's Committee. In fact, I kind of get this voice telling me that a lot of the People's Committee, correct me if I'm wrong, are standing in front of me right now. Initially, of course, said Butterfly, the peasants can't even read and write. I expect they don't even know how to farm properly, said Rincewind gloomily, not after doing it for three or four thousand years. We certainly believe that there are many improvements that could be made, yes, said Butterfly, if we act collectively. I bet you they'll be really glad when you show them, said Rincewind. He stared glumly at the floor. He quite liked the job of a water, water buffalo string holder. It sounded nearly as good as the profession of castaway. He longed for the kind of life where you could really concentrate on the squishiness of the mud underfoot and make up pictures in the clouds, the kind of life where you could let your mind catch up with you and speculate for hours at a time about when your water buffalo was next going to enrich the loam. But it was probably difficult enough without people trying to improve it. He wanted to say, how can you be so nice and yet so dumb? The best thing you can do with the peasants is leave them alone. Let them get on with it. When people who can read and write start fighting on behalf of people who can't, you just end up with another kind of stupidity. If you want to help them, build a big library or something somewhere and leave the door open. And then like further down the page, freedom it just means being told what to do by someone different. And so, like, mm. I, I thought that was really interesting, this idea that when you have revolutions, sometimes they're not actually always representative of the people that they say that they're representative of. And this idea of if you actually wanted to help these people, you would be listening to them and trying to improve their material conditions instead of just being like, oh, well, we're going to take over and we're going to make things better based on what we think better is. So I, I thought that that was fascinating because, yeah, we tend to think it kind of reminded me of Hunger Games as well. The ending of Hunger Games, because there's this idea that, oh, well, like the revolution was successful and that means everybody will be happy. Well, no, what that means is that there's a new person in charge who's going to do things that are just as bad. Right. Um, or or just bad in a different way. I guess the same thing happens in Star Wars, too, with this new trilogy. Like, we have this idea that, oh, the Rebellion won. Well, but then what happens? Like, how do you actually build a a good government after that? Yeah, I think I'm, I've read it out before on the show, the Doctor Who quote, which I think about an awful lot. You know, what's going to happen once you stand your gl- glorious revolution down? What happens when the peop- like the next revolution comes along? You know, mm-hmm. you're going to stamp those people out for doing the same thing that you're going to do. I really right. like freedom is just being told what to do by someone else. Yeah, which I think also comes from it does come from an Ankh-Morpork point of view, because the idea is that, well, at least Vetinari cares about the city working. Right. He's not mad Lord Snapcase. <laughs> right. He's not actively yeah. torturing people, but he is still like a dictator and running the ship compared to the alternatives. Not so bad. All right. Next episode. Have you actually read the book Phantom of the Opera or seen the Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber musical production? I'm quite I'm quite a fan of the film starring Gerard Butler. Fair. So, in our next episode, the witches are going to the opera in masquerade. So, we're going to get some phantom action.
Will there be different faces on display? Masquerade. <laughs> we'll have to see. Where can people find you online and on their headphones? You can find me on Twitter at SpicyDigital, where recently I've shared an announcement that you'll be able to hear my voice voice acting in a different podcast called Pasithea Powder Season 3. That's fun. I auditioned for that and I got it. I've gotten... Yay, I've decided to make... Yeah, thank you. Uh, there's another another role that I got, which I can't announce yet. Uh, but yeah, that's an exclusive. Um, I've also decided to make my personality a large part of my personality. Um, looking forward to the sequel to James Cameron's Avatar. <gasps> so, my Twitter display name is just a countdown to how many days it is until Avatar Two: Avatar: The Way of Water comes out. Uh, it's currently 222 <laughs> days as of this recording. I still can't believe that's going to be a real movie. Fun fact, I've never actually seen the first Avatar, but I think it, it's really? just very funny to have, like, being excited for Avatar 2, being really excited for Avatar 2 as a personality trait. That's what I thought. It should be very funny. So that's what I'm doing. This is a, like, three, like, three quarters of a year long bit, nearly. I'm excited to see where it goes. Method acting, getting in character for... The the role of viewer of Avatar. Yeah, I'm toying with the idea of watching Avatar, the original one, every day until it comes out. That film is two hours and 45 minutes long. It's a long film. You should come on to Monkey to talk about it, though. Like, when we get to when it's about to be released, you should come on and talk about it. Mm, That's a plan. Like, I have watched That's this, a plan. I have watched this film 200 times. I mean, people do it. Yeah. Where can we find you, Tessa? You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog, at Monkey Backlog on Twitter. And Nigel was recently on our podcast, so you can find that episode. I believe that when this episode comes out, it will be like two episodes ago. It's called Nigel Assigns. So look for that if you want more Nigel content on a monkey episode. I don't know why you would want that, but sure. <laughs> well, we always want that, which is why we love having you on. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club, and you can find it on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. This isn't Unseen University, is it, sir? said Rinswind. The other men the other spears stopped pointing at him. The men grinned. They had very white teeth. Clatch Hawandaland? It looks like Hawandaland, said Rinswind, hopefully. Don't know them, blokes, bloke, said one of the men. The other three clustered around him. What we call him. He's kangaroo bloke. No worries there. One minute a kangaroo, next minute a bloke. The old blokes say that sort of thing used to happen all the time, back in the dream. I reckoned he'd look better than that. Yeah. Well, one way to tell. The man who was apparently the leader of the group advanced on Rinswin with the kind of grin reserved for imbeciles and people holding guns and held out a stick. It was flat and had a bend in the middle. Someone had spent a long time making rather nice designs on it in little coloured dots. Somehow, Rinswin wasn't at all surprised to see a butterfly among them. The hunters watched him expectantly. Uh, yes, he said. Very good. Very, very good workmanship. Yes, interesting pointillistic effect. Shame you couldn't find a straighter bit of wood.
One of the men laid down his spear and squatted down and picked up a long wooden tube covered with the same designs. He blew into it. The effect was not unpleasant. It sounded like bees would sound if they'd invented full orchestration. Um, said Rinson. Yes. It was a test, obviously. They'd given him this met piece of wood. He had to do something with it. It was clearly very important. He'd... Oh, no. He'd say something or do something, wouldn't he? And then they'd say, Yes, you are the great bloke, or something. And they'd drag him off, and it'd be the start of another adventure. I.e., a period of horror and unpleasantness. Life was full of tricks like that. Well, this time Rinson wasn't going to fall for it. I want to go home, he said. I want to go back home to the library, where it was nice and quiet. And I don't know where I am, and I don't care what you do to me, right? I'm not going to have any kind of adventure or start saving the world again, and you can't trick me into it with a mysterious bit of wood. He gripped the stick and flung it away from him with all the force he could still muster. They stared at him as he folded his arms. I'm not playing, he said. I'm stopping right here. They were still staring, and now they were grinning too at something behind him. He felt himself get getting quite annoyed. Do you understand? Are you listening? He said. That's the last time the universe is going to trick Rincewit. The end.